Welcome to Mouthwash, TBD's conferences podcast with me, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. That's technology, behavior, and data. I'm also founder of the Emerging Technology Advisory, Hereforth. Jess Butcher has had an amazing career and she's not nearly done yet. MBE, founder, VC, and the next step is a secret. Previously co-founder of Blipper and social media video platform Tick, Jessica gets the tech and online worlds, but she's frustrated by the state of online discourse, which is ironic considering we talked via Twitter spaces. Hence, the quality of the audio isn't as you'd expect if we were in a full studio setting. Listed as one of Fortune's 10 most powerful women entrepreneurs and recently appointed as a Quality and Human Rights Commission board commissioner, Jessica isn't just a thinker. She's a doer too, and that's a powerful combination indeed. That's enough lo-fi, I think, for everyone. Hello and welcome to Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. Every weeknight with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, Emerging Tech Advisor, creator of CBD Conference. Joining me every night is a smart cookie of my choosing, and tonight's cookie is founder, funder, MBE, Jess Butcher. Um, before we get going, um, Twitter Spaces is still a beta product um, from Twitter, so let's just take a minute to explain it a bit. Um, I know a few of you um, via your uh, icons at the moment, but um, not everyone. So the top bit where you can see the question uh, box, if that means that's called the nest. And that's where I or any speaker can post tweets and sort of the stuff that we want to talk about. And um, Mouthwash uses this to discuss them in a section we call Desert Island Tweets. If you look at the bottom of your phone screens, you'll see some icons, dots, people's hearts, etc. Click on the one on the right, the staple with an arrow pointing up and let the world know that you found something great today if you've got that uh, that, that finger working. Um, that would be great because everyone you entice into the space, um, we're actually planting a tree over the course of season one. We've got 20 episodes in season one. We're on number three today. Um, and that's courtesy of the guys at Ecology who make offsetting your carbon footprint super easy. We've worked with them for years at TBD. Um, if you want to find out more about them, they're over at ecology.com. That's E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. Um, personal or for your business, Elliot and the team are great partners to work with and it's super easy. I think the um, the TBD forest that we've got going is over 5,000 trees now, so we're doing well. Um, thanks also to Shell for sponsoring the show. Um, Shell's recently published a target Shell's recently published a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner, in step with society, of course. Um, find out more about how Shell's powering progress over at shell.com forward slash powering progress. Um, I'm excited to announce that we'll actually have Dan Jevons from Shell joining us at the end of the um, season. He's um, basically the head of digitization uh, for the business, and um, he'll really help a lot of people get ahead of various curves. So definitely tune in for that. He's right at the end of the series. Um, right. Okie doke. On with tonight's fresh chat. Um, let's uh, give uh, Jess a warm welcome. Um, if you can reach for the heart button on the bottom of your screens, we all just learned where that was, and show Jess some love with an emoji of your choosing. Uh, don't worry, there's only four or five to choose from. Um, Jess's bio is an absolute riot while you do that. Called the most powerful female entrepreneur by Fortune magazine, a top 100 woman by the BBC, and a dot-com flop by the Sunday Times. That's all in her own bio. I'm not being mean. She's an angel advisor founder with Blipper and AR Tick. Uh, she's a funder as well. Jess is now moving into new waters and uh, just took a new role uh, as a board commissioner for the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Um, a lot's been changing for Jess, including embarking on an ambitious new area of interest, which I didn't know about a lot. So it's really interesting that we're, we're talking about this today, and that's why 
why we've got the theme of discourse. Um, lots being formed as we speak, so I thought it would be a good time to have her on before uh, everyone's beating down her door, because it is a subject that a lot of people are talking about, and it's getting more and more popular. So Jess, welcome to Mouthwash. It's really great to have you. Hi, Paul. No, I'm really looking forward to this. I absolutely love the potential of this as a platform um, and really excited to trial it with such a professional host. So thank you for having me. <laughs> well, I will. Uh, nothing's happened so far, but it's been a speedway the last three nights down my road. So but we've only had one police siren. That I think somebody mentioned they could hear. But but anyway, we're, we're working on the tech, as they say. But that's the joy of Twitter spaces. It literally is your mobile and the world. Uh, so, yeah, it's a really, really, really fun space. But really, really pleased to have you on board. Um, OK, where to begin? Um, let's start with the first thing that you thought of when you woke up this morning. Oh, shit. School's back. <laughs> I, had to get up, I had to get up early this morning and iron school uniforms because I didn't I wasn't organized enough to do that. We had long holidays at our school, so they only went back this morning. So I've got three under sevens. You may have sirens to contend with, but I have um, three small children who may well burst in. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, but it's, it's a possibility. Three. Three kids. Three. Yeah. I only thought you had one. Crikey, that's that's three. Wow, that's oh, wow, that's yeah. That's giving me heart palpitations. I don't have children, but anyway, I know a lot of people who do, and I, one is run, enough running around for me. But three, good, good on you. Oh my lord! Right, um, you've had a career and a half, and it's not even over yet. Um, I've touched on it already, but give me a brief overview of what you what the last three to five years have been for you, um, online and offline, and um, where you are now. Sure. Um, so I stepped out of the front seat of um, Blipper, um, our, our sort of augmented reality rocket ship, about five years ago now. And um, since then, have had a portfolio where I've dived more enthusiastically, sometimes full time into some projects um, and then sort of come out. So a bit of board work, bit of advisory, bit of angel investing, some writing around the edges and public speaking. I had... Um, in two, 2020, I think it was, yeah, I had a sort of abortive sort of high burn and um, big business idea around disrupting YouTube. So um, somewhat ambitious and not surprisingly didn't work out particularly well. So I had um, another startup kind of um, roller coaster ride during that year. And then uh, in, in sorry, 2019, and then from pretty much the beginning of lockdown, I've moved back portfolio. So doing a lot of advisory work and writing and thinking and reading. And ultimately, that led to me being um, accepted as a commissioner on the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is a very new world for me. And as you might anticipate, it being so new means that it is a disproportionate amount of my workload, uh, much more so than you would expect from a normal non-exec. Um, but that whole development has kind of moved me into trying to have a think about how far I might be able to use my business building and sort of entrepreneurial background to potentially work on big societal, cultural and political problems in society. So, you know, what are my skills? How can I contribute to some of the challenges that I, I witness in society today? Uh, what can I contribute? Who can I work with? Are there products here? Are there services? Or is it simply a question of trying to be helpful to the organisations that are seeking to make a change? So I guess I'm kind of almost re-educating myself and doing a sort of informal 
degree in a lot of the challenges around um, identity, um, around equality and obviously human rights, around polarization, around the content models that are driving polarization within society. Um, and yeah, doing a lot of reading, listening and Zooms right now, which is it's really exciting. It, it sounds it, and certainly the stuff you've been doing on Substack is really interesting. But we'll talk a bit more about that later. Was there a moment when you sort of like pricked up your ears and you just went, "I, I want to do something in this"? What was what was your moment? What was your spark when you sort of thought, "Do you know what? That's something I really want to spend a portion of my life doing." It was accidental in many ways. Obviously, being one of these sort of minority women in technology and also in entrepreneurship. Um, I was doing a lot of speaking on the women in tech, women in business circuit around London um, and enjoying it because, you know, fundamentally, I want to get more women into both of those fields. There are fields that I found hugely rewarding and there aren't enough women in them. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed being part of that conversation. Um, but as a result, as these events continue to roll around, I, I got a little bit disenfranchised with some of the the way the narrative was moving and it, it sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole of actually looking at feminism about the place of women in society and getting I would say a little frustrated with how binary some of the thinking was with regards to why we were underrepresented and the the, the overriding inclusion simply being you know the very simplistic reason of of discrimination and I I guess I started to question how far there weren't other factors and if we weren't even talking about these other factors you know we might not actually be able to solve this um, as well as we might if we're allowed to bring more nuance into this whole conversation and involve more men in that conversation rather than a lot of women talking to other women about it so that led me on a journey to a TEDx stage um, which was such an incredible experience Um, and I delivered a, um, a speech which was I didn't think at the time, but subsequently transpired to be quite controversial um, in that I, I was, it was considered very unfashionable to be asking the questions that I was. Um, but I, I was very proud of it. I worked very hard on it. I spent a lot of time. Um, I'm just checking you can hear me, Paul. I keep getting the connect, lost connection. I, can you hear me all right? Yeah, it's clear as a bell. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that whole process, which was partly about me cutting my teeth on a more professional style of public speaking and partly, uh, well, mainly about the subject matter, which was like a mini research project in its own right. So I did it in 2018, didn't think much about it. And the thing has just rumbled and rumbled and rumbled. And I just passed actually a million views last week, which was um, a huge milestone and really Congrats. exciting. Um, and I guess it captured a lot of people's imaginations, some um, very negatively and some very positively. Um, and I think it was one of the factors in you know, me being selected for the EHRC because of the fact that I'm really interested in the nuance and the complexities and do ask the difficult questions, which I think yeah. is quite valuable in, in that as a, an organisation. Um, and I guess I've, I've effectively tracked up from that experience out of the specifics of feminism and more into what has happened to debate. I don't understand why everything has become good people, bad people for and against, you know, the tribalistic lines that have formed around all of these contentious issues are actually stopping us from having constructive 
conversations about how to solve them. And I guess that's been my overriding concern, particularly the venom within some of these discussions, which, Mm. you know, I think is so destructive, you know, friendships um, ending, you know, people getting almost violent, actually, around some of them. Uh, indeed, violent um, and on the streets when it comes to you know some of the events of what we've seen in America. They're evidently very heated, emotive subjects, but I'd love to see us discussing them in a in a more constructive way because I think ultimately the further you track up, the more shared the ultimate aim is, um, and that can get swept aside in in some of the narratives um, because there are disagreements over the right strategies and methodologies to approach them but Mm. ultimately there is a huge amount of good intent on whatever side of that narrative you happen to be on so I'm, I'm I'm really interested in the rabbit hole that I've fallen down is goes into philosophy and psychology and just human nature and our lizard brain and system one's thinking system two thinking in terms of how we respond to you know the deluge of information that is just so angry Mm. um everywhere and uh, i'm in the midst of that as a as a bit of a research project and building up network to try and find positive constructive solutions uh, let's jump into that so so you're you, you've literally just decided right i'm just going to do this thing what is the research project going to build to if that makes sense and then i guess you know why what apart from you've mentioned sort of some some interesting elements but why focus on this one it's such it, i whenever i talk about online discourse i say it's like holding a balloon full of water and asking it to remain its shape whatever way you do it always seems to like come out sometimes for good sometimes for bad tell me what your sort of like if, if you know you might not know where you think it's going to go you're sounding like my husband right now Um, (laughs) he's like what are you doing and when is it going to make you any money um which is a valid question actually um I don't know is the answer whether this remains a passion project or something that I do find a solution that I think I can really add value and create that will generate um you know interesting conversations or a product that will help us sort of evaluate our own biases who knows? Um, and I'm very open-minded to that. And I'm also the you know, the egotistical entrepreneur would love to create something and potentially from scratch. But I'm so conscious of how new I am to this space and how many incredible thinkers and uh, doers there are already working on brilliant initiatives, um, whether it's debating competitions or it's technical AI products that look at bias or it's fact-checking technologies, that I'm wondering how wise it is for me to try and recreate the wheel and not just see how far I can't amplify or connect people that are doing really fantastic work um, across a number of different facets of this field. My husband would love to know where it's going. I don't need to know right now you know it may be as I say it remains a side passion of mine it's one that I think is very very relevant to the work that I am doing at the EHRC anyway so you know I hope to be able to feed in more context and insight and sort of behavioral science Mm. and the learnings and the talent that I come across and see how far they might be able to come in and talk to the organization about you know how we can how we can help the different sides of the different debates that we're so heavily involved in. Um, so it's it, at the moment, it just sits really nicely in my area of passion and my responsibility uh, with the commission. 
Mm. And uh, I'll see, you know, I still, I, I feel more and more naive the deeper I go into it. It's like that old adage, you know, you, you feel more stupid the more you know. And I'm very much in that realm right now. You know, so mm. having started to go deeper, I feel that there's this sort of entrepreneurial naivety of thinking, oh, I can find a solution. I'm going to fix everything. This is such complicated stuff. I will not fix much but I hope to be able to contribute, if only to open people's eyes further to you know, the tools and techniques that are exacerbating some of these, these trends and, uh, and problems. Mm. Well, I mean, the pieces you've written on Substack are really interesting, I think, for thought starters. And it's clear that you, you're doing your research, if that makes sense. You've, um, you talk about them on antidotes and that sort of thing. Uh, can you tell everyone what that idea is and sort of you know, where, where you think that's going? Yeah, what's an entrepreneur? Always an entrepreneur, right? Got to brand it. Um, So I love the idea of antidotes because I think the sense that we have or that we often get, particularly if we spend too long on certain platforms or reading certain types of media, that frankly, the world is going to hell in a handcart. Um, You know, everything seems to be bad and getting worse. um, And I, I actually think it's having a, a very serious effect on people's mental health. You know, we feel overwhelmed by the news and the cycle. We feel slightly traumatized by the incredibly, you know, sad stories that, mm. you know, consume our, our news feed. Um, and understandably, stories are much more powerful than data and facts. And it got me thinking about the sort of negativity bias within the news and actively trying to find people that would provide information that, you know, perhaps painted a more positive picture. And there's some great examples of this. I think the most famous of whom is Hans Rosling, whose book Factfulness, um, I think, did that very effectively, saying, yeah, look, there's a lot of work to be done in a lot of areas, but here's all the positives. Here's where the progress has happened. Here's how we build upon that progress. And continue to move it in the right direction rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater because we think, you know, everything is so shit, we need to restart and build it back up from um, from zero again. And I, I've naturally found myself drawn to these thinkers that, are, that look at the world through a slightly more positive lens, not to deny that these problems exist, but how to build upon progress and to recognise you know, the positive opportunities and the incremental benefits that that we can find as opposed to the, oh, you know, we're all going to die and everybody's everybody's racist and everybody's sexist. And, you know, the, you know it's a sort of defeatism around a lot of that mm. that I think holds us back from actually having constructive, positive and optimistic conversations about solutions. Mm. And to me, that word antidote encapsulates that just because you know they they they're people when you approach a problem thinking you can find a solution you that's where solutions happen Mm -hmm. that's where answers come that's where collaborations are forged you know if we're feeling so uh, you know besieged by negativity a hopelessness can set in um and i guess the the idea of antidotes are people that they don't deny that the problems exist, but they really look for constructive, creative uh, and optimistic solutions to them. So that that's the idea. Um, and I've identified my own antidotes, but other people's will probably be different. You know, it's uh, it's more of a sentiment. 
I think the mindset thing is a really interesting thing. Um, as I've demonstrated, I think it's a very difficult problem and one that has, you know, at the heart, a TBD answer, if that makes sense. Um, I think you've mentioned it a few times and touched upon it. Polarisation, it's a massive issue um, around the world and we're, we're all being forced the edges i wonder uh, you know the, the them and the us i see it creeping back all the day in people's language and tweets and you know imagery and that sort of thing um now that obviously the orange one has gone um do you think that the 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 stop gap that was stopping people doing things like this can be put back or do you think that we've lost something forever and we kind of have to build a new yeah i i think I mean, he, the orange one, he was effectively the, you know, personification of a lot of these trends that I think existed prior to him and certainly, you know, I think facilitated his his journey. And, and there's no question that, you know, the rhetoric during those years has exacerbated the situation and, you know, has really created a much stronger sense of, of them and us. I do think, antidote again, that there's there's been a lot of learnings from that. And I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of people seeking to build bridges as a result. Yeah. Because yeah. there's obviously been, you know, sort of pushback on the other side that's moved that rhetoric, you know, slightly further left than it was previously as a result to <clears throat> what we witnessed in America. But, you know, we had our own problem here with Brexit that mm-hmm. manifested itself in very similar ways. And there's microcosms of that divide that exists across most societal issues now. This sort of you're either with us or you're against us type of mentality. Having said that, that's the impression that we have when we tap into these themes and this news when we're on social channels. But I actually don't think that that is necessarily I am an optimist. I don't think that is as representative of most people's opinions on many of these issues mm. that you would think. And and to give a completely benign example, but you would think that everybody either loves or hates Meghan Markle because that's all you hear mm. when you know she crops up in the news as she so regularly does. And yet, I suspect most people are like, hmm, you know, I kind of get a point, and I kind of feel sorry for the royal family, and you know, don't have that intensity of emotion about an issue that you would think everybody does have. I think more and more of us are starting to feel more intensity around these issues, particularly when we're told that our thinking is wrong and then people can entrench further and dig their heels in. And I guess that's the danger zone around a lot of this. Firstly, that we are the perception created is that these things are more binary and then you get to a point at which you kind of have to pick a side if you want to even have a conversation on it because it's very rare now that people will get on a public square platform and say actually I don't have an opinion on that I I haven't read that much about it you know I don't know that I've made my mind up Mm. I don't think I've heard a politician say that you know in my adult life Um, and I would love to hear somebody say that because I think we've lost the ability or we're losing the ability to actually think out loud and to make mistakes in thinking. And and I do that a lot and it gets me into trouble. So I'm having to learn to do that less. But I think it's a real shame that we can't think out loud, that we, we're worried about, you know, being taken out of context or being quoted in a way, you know, my views will change. They mm. do frequently. 
Um, and yet, you know, something that I've said sort of five or six years ago that I no longer feel nearly as strongly about, if not may have changed my mind about entirely, mm. will and could, you know, if I if my profile raises, come back to bite me as it does with so many people in the public eye now. And that's just such a shame because we're always all of us growing at all times. We're all learning. We're all taking on new information. Mm. And, you know, I personally believe that we're never actually right all we can hope to be is kind of progressively less wrong through being more curious um, and and having more conversations and going a little deeper um, mm. and reading more and seeking out views of those who we don't necessarily agree with. The challenge is we just don't have time to do that on all these issues that we're supposed to have an opinion on. You know, mm. we're all treading water on the top of most of these issues mm. because there's just too much content and too much work. And as I've discovered, as soon as you start to dive down a little bit deeper, you get less confident uh, about what you know and you get more lost and realise that, oh, wow, I need to do a PhD actually to understand this issue, mm. which isn't going to happen. Do you think that's what it is? It's just that people that lack the time or is there something more basic going on that we're not necessarily teaching our kids to sort of think critically um, or question authority uh, and do those sorts of things? Is it a more fundamental element that discourse is sort of shifting because we aren't giving our people um, the, the soft skills that people need or the ability to sort of think for themselves a little bit? I feel like the last 10 years, the Internet's given it, well, let's say no no technology is evil we're going to come to that later but my is that the internet is a freer it's free information you've got lots of elements and like that but we don't have the skills necessarily or we don't get to teach them the skills teach them the school to think critically and sort of challenge information and sort of go oh i'm not not 100 sure on that i need to find corroborating evidence I, I think it does stem from time but i think there are other things at play what what do you think yeah, I think there's um, there's a lot going on with that question. I think there's some human psychology here about the fact that um, we kind of actually, I'm sorry to say, like feeling outraged. You know, there's a there's an element of everybody kind of enjoying drama mm. and also enjoying tribalism to a certain extent. You know, you want to feel that you are supported or or are around like minded people, and there's a there's community in that. I think it's a slightly false sense of community, but there's definitely a sense of community. And, you know, when we've all been remote for the last year, any community, you know, will do for many of us because, you know, there, there, there just isn't that much of it, which means yeah. that we're not having the conversations, looking into the whites of each other's eyes and actually appreciating the nuance or the irony or the context of why that person is is saying that when you give them the benefit of the doubt, which, by the way, is something that I love about the audio types of discussions that we can have on Twitter spaces, because when you hear somebody talking and potentially thinking out loud, you can give them the benefit of the doubt a lot more than if you simply see them quoted in something potentially out of context. Um, so there's, there's something there. Sorry, Paul. No, 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 I was just going to say that's an interesting point you bring up because I think it's sometimes people read a lot harsher than they hear and sometimes the intent is just the same but they just have said it in a softer tone. Like you can say you're going to knife someone or you can write it down and those are two, they mean two very different things and I think 
what we're having to learn as online is people's intent and sort of how do you show that? Is it an emoji and that sort of thing? It's kind of interesting. Um, when it comes to audio spaces, I think they're like you do say you have intonation, you've got um, what do you call it? T- uh, timing speed and that sort of stuff. You do, you just get more information. And I keep coming back to that point. I think online discourse isn't necessarily a time issue for a lot of platforms and that sort of stuff. I think it comes down to what they're offered. Twitter's a great example where people, you know, what does a, a retweet, what does a quote tweet mean? You know, and people, I've been in rooms where people have almost like throttled each other. It's crazy. But um, at the heart of it, I think it's quite interesting that Twitter's now sort of trying to force people to be like, hey, you haven't clicked through that link, but you're retweeting it. Do you want to actually read that thing that you're going into to make sure that it's like a good thing for you to retweet? And I kind of like that. That sort of feels like a nice sort of technological step to take. But before that, the person needs to think that without that, if that makes sense. I agree. I mean, there's a lovely campaign that has been started called um, the Larger Us campaign, Mm. which puts the onus on the individual to really understand our own responses to the sort of negative um, media and news diet that we are fed and actually to take that moment to shift yourself out of that immediate system one sort of lizard or monkey brain whatever you want to call it response the knee jerk because it's the knee jerk frankly that retweets and it's the knee jerk that likes Um, and if you step back and breathe and think and say well you know if that's a hateful person that's saying that by retweeting them you're going to make a lot of other people feel that immediate sense of outrage and these things just suddenly spiral Mm. into a great sort of media burst of anger upset frustration that we all fuel by responding in that way um and they they talk about you know these spirals either spiraling down or upwards um and i I highly recommend checking out the the business it's called larger us Uh, it's not a business it's not for profit but I, I think there's a lot to learn from that. And I tried to summarize some of that thinking within my latest blog where I think to say, well, look, it's it's about us. And it's not just about understanding, but then uh, adjusting our behaviors to mm. this world as well. So kind of how to how to seek out the longer form, more nuanced content, how to stay curious and not dig in. And actually just continue to ask questions, more questions, you know, the two ears, one mouth kind of analogy. And then thirdly, to to have better conversations, conversations that personify curiosity as opposed to entrenched. I know I know everything because, as I said, none none of us do. And simply by learning from these sort of behavioral psychologists that have looked at this. It's it's genuinely affected how I engage and how I even read social media now. I do it much more through a lens of curiosity than through with that sort of instinct that is to get irritated. Mm. I'm more when I see something that I think is so profoundly wrong, rather than being cross, I now think, interesting. Why I wonder why what what have they read or what are they where how have they come to that opinion and I want to I want to understand more now I may have more time than most to go down that rabbit hole um but it's it's made me I guess much more philosophical about the news that I'm consuming than I perhaps was before I recognized what was happening in my own physiology when when uh, you know um consumed by by those initial um um instinctive reactions but i do think that question you you raised around 
how we educate children um, is a really interesting one. And that's something I definitely want to explore a lot more. There's a fabulous book on this that I thoroughly enjoyed by Jonathan Haidt and um, Greg Lukianoff called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's and it, it, it's based on a lot of American data, but it's very relevant to the UK as well. And it talks about the three great untruths that are really prominent in the education system right now. And, and those being what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Effectively, mm. telling children that ideas can hurt them and that speech can hurt them. Uh, the always trust your feelings is the second great untruth. Of course, we shouldn't trust our feelings because we're emotional beings. We we respond in a very emotive to way to things that ignores a more rational response. Uh, yeah. And the third is um, life is a battle between good people and evil people. And, you know, there's a lot of teaching within schools that actually encourages that kind of thinking, which is incredibly counterproductive to um, to debate, to constructive um, argumentation, to having great, great and challenging conversations that build resilience in us. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really keen to explore all of those a bit further. Interesting. Um, just before we go on, uh, this is a two-way platform. Um, obviously, audio spaces, I can give the mic out to people. I've, I've sort of chosen not to do that for Mouthwash, but I do want to hear your questions. So if you do want to ask Jess a question, use the hashtag Mouthwash Show or just click through uh, on the, the tweet in the nest up the top of your screens and you can uh, compose a tweet and I will look at those um, throughout the go to show. But um, let's crack on. So... Um, we, we haven't really talked about big tech, if that makes sense. Uh, and I think I think we do have to sort of talk about them if we are, you know, going to going to cover online discourse um, in in that sort of sense. A lot of the platforms um, have moderators uh, and those sorts of um, uh, functionality. And blocking is really the only other answer that people can sort of do in order to sort of get rid of this. And I know female journalists have um, a massive problem I, that I just was not aware of. And I've, I've seen some of the DMs and they, they're now posting them, God, thank God, um, so that people know and that sort of stuff. And um, it's absolutely heinous what they're going through on different um, platforms for very different reasons. But ultimately, it's like they've got an opinion. Um, it can't be the only answer, though, just to block people. But equally, creating bubbles isn't good anyway. I get a lot of value sometimes sometimes in bubbles, but obviously coming out of them like you're doing at the moment, you, you get a lot more um, richness in the world. Where, where does that leave platforms? What can they play with in that sort of space? Is that affecting any of your thinking as well? It is. And I'm, I'm very confused on this. Obviously, the entrepreneur and business owner in me, you know, respects the right of these platforms to, to grow, be entrepreneurial, to monetize in the way they do. And yet I'm so alarmed by the trends that the attention economy has ultimately uh, resulted in you know the fact that it is the attention economy that i think drives a lot of our tendency towards clickbaity outrage outrage driving kind of short form oversimplistic binary narratives because that's all anyone has the time for and that tends to get shared nobody shares a tweet saying I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> or, you know, and even now a retweet is considered an endorsement when obviously it, it, it doesn't need to be. It can be just that this is a very interesting, provocative, different type of view that, you know, actually inspired me to think more deeply about it. Um, and I just don't know how we fight against the attention economy in the way that it has grown, because the alternative is that consumers have to pay 
for the news that they consume. Mm. And I'm watching a lot of the new entrants to the markets. I'm really fascinated by um, the evolution of the whole slow news um, um, platforms like Tortoise. Um, and there are others that are cropping up around different demographics, for example, millennial women, where you know they take a much more considered medium to long-term look at these issues rather than sort of combusting with each news story that happens. Um, and I hope they have huge success, but you know they're also going to be stymied by the fact that that generation isn't used to paying for news. Mm. So you know they do need to get the eyeballs somehow, and you're pushing water uphill if you're trying to fight the the psychology of our tendency towards liking, feeling shocked, um, yeah. and you know the the all the clickbait techniques that I'm as guilty of as anyone else. You will not believe what this celebrity was seen doing last week. I was like, what? What were they doing last week? <laughs> click, click, click. It um, is that fear of missing out, isn't it? I think that a lot of people sort of synonymise in the dopamine hit that that gives us. When I um we did a new format TBD this year with Rory Sutherland, who, if you don't know, is a behavioural psychologist. Love. Rory's great yeah he uh, I asked him a very pertinent impertinent actually question um and I said um is uh I've I've got to get it right is behavioral psychology the root of all evil in the world and he said the root of all evil and solution too and I thought that was quite sort of just telling of a sort of way that that a whole industry is thinking about what they've wrought on the world and continue to sort of like you know wrought on the world a lot of these um UX designers sort of like have this secret handbook of how to get people to do things online but they never necessarily thought of like how do we get them to do good things online just as much and I think um when you've got the mobile sort of black mirror in your hand it's a lot easier to do things quickly because it's just it's a thumb swipe or it's something like that and it's these gestures and this is something that i'm interested in about is gestures outward but also physical gestures that we're doing online that actually people are taking to sort of mean different things and i think over the next 24 months we're going to start seeing a lot more um refinement over these as platforms evolve because uh, we are getting into new spaces and that sort of we it can't all be audio people just as we've mentioned today don't have the time uh, what, are, what are your sort of concerns for the next 24 months um i'm i'm actually quite optimistic i think there's a lot of people waking up to some of the negative byproducts of technology which i genuinely want to give them the benefit of the doubt have had unforeseen negative um side effects um, and I, I'm particularly encouraged when I see things like the Center for Humane Tech and yeah. the huge numbers of product designers and developers that are embracing different ways to design products to try and build in better, healthier, less addictive, less dopamine driven um, models. And I, I think audio definitely has a part to play in all that. I think we're seeing the rise of different types of media. I think Substack is is very interesting yeah. Um, particularly for longer form. And podcasts are doing a fantastic job of allowing people to have freewheeling conversations that go much deeper than, you know, the surface level um binary messaging that that we're that that we see. And indeed, Twitter, you know, it does, I do roll my eyes occasionally, but I really get great long-form content fed to me via this platform from mm. considered bright, interesting thinkers that are sharing longer form pieces that I can go into when I have the time and, and bookmark and, and use in that way. 
Um, the whole question of how big tech is regulated is more interesting. And I don't know that, you know, I don't see how that's going to fall out, whether they have to take responsibility as the publisher or whether they're simply, you know, providing the town square within which people, you know, behave as as humans will behave. And that needs, I think, a lot of thought because there are ramifications whichever way we go when it comes to legislating sort of monopolistic ownership of the town square. Um, you know, I lean towards less regulation, but then, you know, we're already seeing a lot of, you know, censorship happening within the platforms that is subjective and at the whim of the owners of the of the platform. Um, and that's you know become a really big contentious issue of debate in the states. Mm. Um, and I think it's one we all, anyone within tech and entrepreneurship, needs to be tapped into and be part of the conversation on. I know the government's fascinated, but a government is always playing catch up because you know wherever you draw the line in the sand of what's happening now will have changed, you know, in six months' time, you know, let alone in a year or two. So it's it's very, very hard to legislate for, and very few governments, as demonstrated by the congressional hearings in America. We're much better at it, by the way, in Europe. I think we've got a better handle on it than yeah. um, they seem to in Washington. Um, but it, it's it's a debate that we all need to, I think, play a part in. Yeah. No, James, um, we were speaking with James Ball, um, who's um, from the, Invest the Bureau of Investigative Journalism last night about that very subject, about how, how much teeth um, different regulators have. He, he, he was actually quite um, down on both both parts of the world, um, saying that, you know, they're not talking in large enough percentages for anyone to be deterred from anything. Um, but he also said um, it was interesting that the polarisation of CEOs is one of the things that could have the biggest sort of change in the world, if that makes sense um those sort of comments seem to fit in here what do, what do you think leaders need to do and then i want to talk about what because you're entrepreneurial and i think that brings something even more different to this space because there aren't that many people doing what you do there so what do leaders need to do um whether it's platforms or non-platform leaders in order to help um online discourse and shape that sort of narrative if that makes sense I think more people need to be educated in on the behavioural psychology of the impact that these platforms have on people. That's the first thing I would say. And there's a lot of research happening in academia, but I don't see much of it filtering through into business. Um, and I, I'd love to be a part of you know that process, you know, helping to demystify and enable business owners to know you know the risks involved in you know, jumping into the latest sort of social um, campaigning initiative and understanding, you know, the, how, how depressed people are actually getting about yeah. the, the news and the content that they're consuming and the, the always on, you know, there's whole other conversations to be had about what's happened in post-COVID with the everybody working from home and that lack of delineation between now our working and our, and our personal lives and, you know, how that needs to be thought about behaviourally when mm. the world reopens. You know, there's lots of conversations that I think, you know, I, I would love to see that taken seriously enough to have a kind of C-suite role on any sizable business. You know, we talk about corporate responsibility a lot when it comes to diversity and green and sustainability issues. I don't see enough weight being given to the sort of behavioural ramifications of big tech and debate and, and and content and the responsibility of content and 
open discussions and format. You know, very little priority is given to diverse, diversity of thought anywhere. Yeah. And that, that's a worrying trend, I think, um, yeah. because it's considered that some of these issues are just, you know, that it's decided. And, you know, any deviation from the, you know, the, the the consensus is dangerous and or damaging and potentially career limiting and that I think needs to be talked about more openly as an issue without necessarily needing to go into the specifics of the issues that everyone's you know getting upset about. Yeah I think that's a big sort of trend that I'm seeing with the future of work um, stuff that I'm doing uh, for a lot of clients and um, for the Tech London Advocates group that I'm um, part of is leaders actually now having to take stronger roles on things and also lead in different ways than they had to before when it comes to technology. I think what's quite interesting um, when you think in general terms about technology is a lot of it is sort of cast as good or evil and it's never the technology's fault and that's that's the narrative that i keep it's now more polarized than ever that that is the truth if that makes sense you know facebook was um designed to be evil and you know actually it, it was designed for a lot of different weird reasons but it wasn't that you know people are using it in different ways and that's what's an interesting one but i also think that entrepreneurs can play an interesting part in solving that problem and i think you're an example of a different thinker that, that offers a different way of thinking and focusing on that. Um, what's giving you cause for optimism um, in that sort of realm of different thinking, whether it's governmental, structural or anything like that? Is there anything that you think that people should be taking more notice of, doing more of, less of? I think people are waking up to the fact that the, the, the news and the the narratives that are being fed are too binary to be true. Mm. And I think there's the, the curiosity about this whole question is, is on the rise. And with genuine, you know, constructive agreement um, in terms of how we should have these discussions amongst the vast majority of people, I think the impression that we get is that, as I said earlier, it's more binary than it is. And I'm noticing, and indeed all the conversations I'm having, all right, I'm, I tend to be driving these conversations because it's on my mind so much. And I just read an article that day that I want to tell somebody about on the Zoom chat. And, you know, people who would say, for example, that they totally disagree with me on the subject of my TEDx, which, by the way, is most of my friends and many of my family even, um, they understand the need to have those conversations. And yeah. you can have them very productively. And I think people are actively seeking out opportunities to have them in a constructive and intellectually curious stimulating way and I think anybody that can provide more of those opportunities um, will enjoy you know a bit of a heyday over the coming months and years and, and therein I think lie a lot of opportunities for entrepreneurs for content creators uh, and potentially the tech, tech platforms that are fueling them alongside, as I've mentioned, kind of greater awareness of, you know, our, our own human tendencies and psychology when it comes to our responses to these things. And it's fascinating stuff when you start to dive into it. And I, I guess what I would hope to do is to work with those people that can translate a little bit of the academic ease into accessible nuggets that, you know, give people that food for thought um, and confidence to you know have the more difficult conversations in a in a very positive humble curious way as opposed to a 
I know what I think and I, you know, you're wrong uh, and I'm right way. Oh, I'm definitely. about that. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely think that's the, that's the case. I think it's hard when you're at polar opposites, if that makes sense, to sort of bring people more towards the middle. If you're starting at sort of 25% and 75% on a spectrum of like, you know, different thoughts, it's easier to pull it because there's sort of a bit of motion. It also depends on how much traction there is in that sort of pendulum, if that makes sense. You can move people if they're in movement, but if they're not and they're staunchly in their pockets, that's when it gets to trouble and you start getting bubbles and filters and that sort of stuff. Um, I think you've got a lot of AI research in your future with this project that you're um, embarking on um do you see have you done much of that already are you seeing it uh, impact uh, any sort of, of your thinking on online discourse to an extent i do think there's definitely a role for ai in all of this um i'm doing actually a lot of thinking at the moment about bias in ai um you know on behalf of you know the, what, what what we're looking at for the ehrc and how you know ai can be employed responsibly by government and in insurance and you know all these areas where it's got the potential to actually really exacerbate um problems with with minority groups um and yes i think there's a case there's some really interesting products coming up that are looking at you know the bias within news and and content and the way in which buzzwords are used and how frequently and you know the rise in um prevalence of of, of certain words and how our national dis- discourse has has swung so dramatically towards certain types of content mm. um and it and it's very powerful in informing us as to particularly you know where the the negativity bias comes from from the news um so that we can understand that because as i say i think we're not going to get anywhere until we understand what's going on and i think most of the work is happening there there are some interesting initiatives that are seeking to find solutions but it's such a complicated problem it would be a naive entrepreneur who would say bingo i've got it i know what's going to fix this you know and and that was me if i'm honest six months ago i was that naive i was like right i'm gonna find a product and it's gonna it's gonna totally break this sort of polarization loop we're all in Uh, there is no one solution there are incremental exciting opportunities um and initiatives you know i think actually debating competitions one of the most old school models of all is um is going to be fantastic there's this lovely company that's called 40 that's developed a game to be played at dinner tables where each card has just got a really sort of wild wacky pronouncement on the state of the world and you're encouraged to have a a conversation around it um you know one of these conversations can see you through to the morning and the early hours that it's um it's really i love just simple ideas like that they're not going yeah. to solve the problem overnight but they're they're, they're, they're lovely initiatives they will have uh, an impact what was the name of it again sorry it didn't really come through 40 like the number Oh, just 40. Oh, okay, brilliant. I'll, I'll Google that and I'll put it online um, later. Um, okay, we're in the dying sort of minutes as uh, as we sort of go, because I like to keep these to an hour. Um, before I do the Desert Island tweets, I think um, you're incredibly brave um, doing this, because I think it's such a lordy and lofty um huge amorphous topic to sort of do and especially with a target on your back that you've had because of the work that you've done for ted with at ted rather and um where you're going with it and that sort of thing so i I definitely do doff my cap to you i certainly think um there's going to be a lot of um ai chat in your future um because i do not think unless we start changing things at a fundamental level that like we've had a talk about education that um 
we're, we're going to see some easy change, if that makes sense. I think to James's point yesterday, he said there needs to come, there's, there's a lot more, so we should be confident that we can, we as people can change things because we've done it before. And I think that's something to sort of take heart that it's not just the, um, what do you call it, um, the, the big tech platforms to solve and that sort of thing. They are they are conduits. They aren't necessarily the originators or ending of things. And that, that gave me a lot of heart. But And I see you, see your you're an expert on these spaces already because you've put it up in the nest. So if everyone looks at the top of their app at the moment, they will actually see a a tweet from uh, Rob Henderson. And uh, this is the part of the show we call Desert Island Tweets, which is essentially one or two tweets that um, the guest picks that has changed their thinking or something or has inspired them in a certain way. So Jess, tell us why you picked this one. Um, I like the way Rob Henderson thinks, but this was just a fantastic use of Twitter. Um, You know, I think Twitter can get a lot of bad press for a lot of the reasons that we've been discussing tonight, frankly. Um, And yet when done well, it's a perfect medium to wet wet people's appetite and to give them food for thought that um, effectively can drive them in different directions and, 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 and fuel longer form interests. Rob does this really, really well. And I follow a lot of people that do this well, that just that tweet out great links and great articles. And this, he basically delivered a hugely valuable Blinkist in one mm. tweet at the end of last year, where I think this, this thread went on to be 10 or 12 of his favorite books from the year, which he probably illegally also uh, added photos and his own highlights through. And I think I went on to buy three of the books and I got a huge amount. I I got a huge amount from reading the segments that he pulled out. Uh, So I just thought it was a lovely use of Twitter. I found it in my um, bookmarks after you asked me this question. But obviously the one that I should be posting, I'm going to post actually, is my own blog on all of this because it... um, it it probably better explains where we've gone with the conversation today and and some of my motivation for doing this let me just find it yes i'll post it as well at the end um in a a couple of tweets that i'm doing as well um jess i can't thank you enough for spending your time um with us today i would definitely recommend everyone um subscribe to uh the substack it is um free um and it probably won't be all the time but if you get in there quick i'm sure she won't charge you at the end um it's um an absolute pleasure to speak to someone who um i think you said it earlier actually who says they don't know about things because so often we just don't get that luxury with people and it's you know you've got to be an expert on everything and i think that's just the honest you know it's that honesty that realism that's coming back to a lot of icy experts that you know consider i don't know but i'm actually going to go away and find that out that's really interesting what do you think about it we can start that dialogue there having those questions and attacking problems from that sort of thing gives people a much better standing in life i think than just being polar for everything that's something i fight against all the time and chatting to you and reading your stuff has really helped me recently figure out sort of some positions on things but also how to think about things generally so i can't thank you enough for that and also being on the first season of mouthwash so if everyone can give um jess just a massive silent round of applause using the heart button at the bottom of uh the uh, bar that would be great you choose an emoji i chose 100 but whatever you want to choose you choose um just while you're doing that i will read out some extra things um twitter spaces you can now get notified um with them so yeah see lots of hundreds keep them going while i'm talking um you can do that it's also tweet at the top and i'll remind you um at the end but essentially go to your settings and privacy in the twitter app click on notifications and then push notifications and broadcasts and spaces they've updated it now and so if you want to get notified every time uh, we go live which is 
every night, uh, every weeknight at 7.30 p.m. GMT uh, and in America at the same time, then um, you can do that. Um, as regular listeners know, Mouthwash is a huge experiment that we undertook, uh, and I'm really thrilled to have an amazing season. Jess is one of the cohorts of brains that we've got. Um, tomorrow is the surprise guest, which is, drumroll please, Silicon Valley uh, Bank's Flavia Richardson. So we're going to talk everything to do with startups and funding, what's happened over the last year, what's happening over the next 24 months. She's an absolute force. She doesn't hold back. She's amazing. And on Friday, we're ending the week um, with who else but Wired Magazine Jeremy White. So I dare say the word Apple will be mentioned a couple of times, as well as how tired he is. Um, so he's going to take up the stage and um, he's got some stuff to say as well. We also have um, an amazing season left for the next three weeks as well. We've got New York Times bestseller, Silicon Valley alumni, slam poets, activists, top creatives lined up. We've got absolutely amazing people that I am honoured to spend them some time with. So if you want to know more about Mouthwash, head over to mouthwashshow.com for full details. There's also a full calendar there that you can add to your Google and iCals and that sort of stuff to save you typing in all those letters but we'll be back uh, tomorrow 7 30 and 2 p.m est and 11 30 pst so one final round of emoji for jess thank you ever so much again let's go over the 100 emoji this time and we're going to be better online conversations because of tonight um yeah can't thank you enough jess so i will play us out with some royalty free uh, beautiful music from um uh what do you call it the uh the, wonderful- the lift the lip. It no, sounds, no, no, no. It sounds it's, like it's, a lift. It's way better than that. What are you doing? <laughs> You're underselling it. You're underselling it. But I can't thank everyone for, uh, can't thank everyone enough, rather, for um, joining in. And uh, so off you go. Brush your teeth and make sure you never finish your day without some mouthwash. Thanks, everyone, for joining and listening in. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Mouthwash and the next season live on Twitter Spaces before becoming this podcast you've been listening to. Thanks to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener and Shell for sponsoring the show. Let me know if you're enjoying Mouthwash so far by leaving us a rating and a review. Remember to subscribe to Mouthwash wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes featuring activists, AI experts, Silicon Valley royalty, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, and a lot more beside. See you next time. And remember, always start or end your day with a little mouthwash. <laughs>